0: No necessary. prohibited by law. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Just a reminder that the Dear Prudence podcast happens twice a week. Slate Plus members get an additional mini episode every Friday. Sign up now to listen at slate.com/prudypod. Hello, Prudy listeners. Just a quick note: due to a technical issue, the first minute of our guest is from a phone recording. The sound quality will get better once we start reading letters, so there's no need to panic. Okay, let's start the show.
1: Dear Prudence.
0: Dear Prudence.
1: Dear Prudence.
0: Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear,
1: Prudence. Dear, Prudence. Dear, Prudence. Dear Do you think that I should contact him again?
0: Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the Dear Prudence show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Danny M. Lavery. With me in the studio this week is an old, old college friend, uh, Ella Baker, a trans lesbian writer and host of How to Be Trans, a platform celebrating thriving transgender lives. Ella Welcome to the show. Yeah,
1: thank you so much for having me. It's so good to reconnect with you this way.
0: It's so wonderful, and thank you for teaching me how to be trans. Oh my goodness. And um, I just, I know we can't just like reminisce about like being closeted little trans kids at a Christian college in suburban Los Angeles all hour, but I want to.
1: Yeah, it's worth it reminiscing for sure.
0: Yeah. I'll just say that you were one of the highlights of college then. And you're one of the highlights of my Tuesday today.
1: Oh, thank you so much.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. Well, we will. We will. I'm sure be able to to find ways to work our fascinating histories in uh, to the episode today. But I think I should get us started with our first letter, um, which. By the way, I included some language in here that I would normally edit out if only because it made the letter a little bit too long. But I think it's useful for describing the letter writer's like state of mind right now. And, and there's a couple of things that I think in addition to addressing what actually happened, I, I want to also be sure to name. So just want to throw that out there. I don't normally <laughs> include all of the sort of stuff that this person has decided to include.
1: So, oh, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. Good, I think I think you and I are on the same wavelength here. I will read this letter. <laughs> uh, the subject is Our House, Her Rules. Dear Prudence. Last week I came home from a trip to find a fat, middle-aged naked lady drinking coffee in my kitchen. She screamed and threw her coffee cup at me. I shouted to get out of my apartment before I called the cops. She said that my girlfriend Sherry had let her in. Apparently, Naked Lady is a co-worker of my girlfriend's who is currently living in her car. Sherry has been letting her come over to shower, do laundry, and cook, sometimes just giving this lady her apartment keys. Sherry never mentioned this to me. I got an apology from the coworker, but never an explanation as to why she was naked in our home. I had the locks changed the next day. Sherry grew up very sheltered. She lived with her parents until she graduated college and had a curfew every night. Sherry thinks I'm overreacting and that her coworker is just down on her luck. The woman twitches more than an inbred chihuahua, and her story changes constantly. First her husband abused her, then it was because of her mentally ill brother, then it was the mentally ill girlfriend of her brother. She will not go to a women's shelter. Things have gone missing from the apartment, like my change jar and cell phone charger. She has asked Sherry for a $200 quote loan, which is half of my girlfriend's weekly paycheck. Sherry and I are fighting about this. I told her she could have gotten us robbed or worse. She says, I lack compassion. She's paying to put this woman up in a hotel. I told her flat out that she can spend her money where she wants, but I'm not covering her portion of the bills. We aren't talking much anymore. She's still upset. But there was a naked lady in my kitchen who threw hot coffee at me. Most of my friends think Sherry has lost it. I'm not nuts, right? I wouldn't even let a drunk friend crash on the couch without clearing it with Sherry first. She didn't tell me the entire two weeks I was gone. Yeah. There's there's like, um there are ways in which I think this letter writer is in the right and being reasonable. And there are ways in which I think this letter writer is like seeding the moral high ground. And uh, I want to help you not do that. I want to help you be a hundred percent in the right rather than just like 70. Sure. Like super, super normal to not want your partner to give keys to somebody else that you don't know about. Like that's a totally appropriate thing to be bothered by.
1: Totally. Um, and I do think that the reaction is a little over the top, Um, not just with the language used, like the fat shaming and the comparing her to a quote-unquote inbred chihuahua is just horrid. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's not like this is some premeditated assault by hot coffee. It's probably likely that she was reacting to being caught naked by a stranger. Um, And I don't know if I would have, responded in the same way and she may have just gotten out of the shower
0: yeah i i felt the same thing like it, i think a lot like a lot of the blame for this can be appropriately laid at sherry's feet sure i think calmly like i don't i don't want you to use some of the language you've been using here towards sherry but like yeah, my guess is since she didn't say anything to you about this, she may very well not have told this woman before she gave her the keys to the apartment, by the way, I have a partner who also lives here and might let himself in. So this woman may very well have thought like, I'm alone. I'm a, I am I I have a chance to like take a long shower and really relax and did not expect that. There was somebody else living in the apartment who didn't know she'd be there. So, again, totally understand you're walking in and being startled. Totally understand being upset that she threw her coffee on you. But it's not like she broke in. It's not like she knew you were going to be coming home and just didn't care about like upsetting you. And, yeah, that language of, like, the way that you wrote that sentence made it very clear that at least part of what you consider her crime isn't just being in your home but being fat and naked and that I just think, you don't need to be upset at her about that. That's just the way that her body is shaped. You can be mad that she stole your change jar. Uh, you can be mad that she stole your cell phone charger. You can be mad that your girlfriend um, has not committed to saying, I won't give out our keys unless we both feel comfortable with the situation. All of that you're super entitled to be upset about. But this stuff, it's, it's not helping your case. Uh, it, it's not a boundary that you need to worry about. It's not something that you need to concern yourself with.
1: Yeah, and I do think um, to stand up for Sherry a little bit, it does sound like you lack a bit of compassion, which may be leading to your communication issues with Sherry. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that you aren't communicating now, but it doesn't sound like you have really good communication to begin with. Um, I mean, Sherry absolutely should have communicated that she was going to have a friend or coworker stay over, um, but it might be that your overreaction in this letter clues me into why she probably didn't and she may have been avoiding some kind of conflict with you. Yeah, yeah, I
0: think that's certainly possible. And 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 you know, the stuff about like the woman's shaking, like yeah, maybe she has a medical condition that causes her to shake. Maybe she's really nervous around you because the only other time you two really interacted like it was shocking and and upsetting for you both. It's 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 possible both that like she has multiple problems she may very well have experienced abuse from her husband and a lot of struggles with her mentally ill brother and and his girlfriend who also had mental illness like it's very much possible that she's got a lot of problems going on and and i would even say too like i understand that not everyone feels comfortable and safe at shelters so i you know i i don't think you need to demonize this woman in order to hold the boundary of I don't want us to give keys out to people, specifically, Sherry, I don't want you to give keys out to people without talking it to me first, if only because it puts both of us in a really difficult position if I discover someone.
1: I do think that's a very fine boundary um, to clearly communicate, especially to
0: your partner who you share a space with. Yeah. And so I I would let go of some of the like, you're really sheltered. Like, I, I agree she probably is. But like, you're not going to go back and undo her past. And all you can do is really like advocate for what you think is a reasonable limit here. So I, I-, I think to just go back and say like, I'm really sorry uh, that I-, I kind of like shut down this conversation earlier. I also really need you to commit to at, at the very least telling me before you decide to invite somebody over. I want to be able to develop a guest policy that the two of us um, both have an equal stake in. And if you make these decisions without me, that makes me feel like uncomfortable and unsafe in our own home. And, you know, like as, as, as well-meaning as you've been towards this woman, she's also stolen from me. And that's, that's a consequence of the choice that you make. And it doesn't, again, it doesn't make her a monster. I think you'll be okay without your change star. She's clearly going through a lot, but like, it's also okay for you to say like, I don't want that to happen again. So I, I'm also really curious, like your girlfriend makes apparently $400 a week, but can a, also afford to put this woman up in a hotel. And so I'm a little curious about where that money's coming from, if it's coming from her parents, if it's coming from a shared household expense, like I, I, I guess I don't know that there. But um, yeah, I, I think now's just the time to revisit this when you're a little calmer and not covered in coffee. And if you feel like at the end of that conversation, we have wildly different ideas about how to help people in crisis, figure out what kind of a compromise you can uh, arrive at in your shared home. And then if aside from that, she's a little bit more likely to help people out of her own pocket and you're a little bit less likely to do that, I think maybe just to say we can differ here, but we want to respect one another is maybe the best you can hope for here.
1: Yeah. And I do think it's fair to say that you're not going to recover um Sherry's side of the bills for her compassionate extension of her finances to this woman. Yeah. Um, because you're not responsible for subsidizing Sherry's compassion or her values that you might not hold to the same degree. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that's really reasonable to say, like, hey, as long as you're able to contribute to our shared expenses, what you do with your spending money beyond that, I'm not gonna try to dictate. But I, I, I need you to prioritize our shared household expenses first. That strikes me as totally reasonable. So there's lots here that I think you get to ask for that you are allowed to be bothered by and other ways in which I think it actually would be good to extend somebody a little bit of compassion. I, I think it's especially hard. Like Oftentimes, I think we expect people in crisis to behave like saints. Otherwise, they can't really be in crisis or they don't really deserve help. And without saying like just be a doormat let people in crisis ask for whatever they want from you it's it's often the case that somebody in crisis is in a crisis and they're not able to uh, act in the way that they might want to under other circumstances or they might be so caught up in getting out of the immediate crisis they're not able to consider other people's needs and i think one of the important elements of compassion is kind of being aware of like okay this person is like living out of her car she may be really difficult and frustrating to deal with, but she didn't just, in, like, this isn't a fake problem. It's her life,
1: you know? Yeah, and I mean, for someone facing housing insecurity, and I'm I'm not too sure if she actually stole the change jar in the phone charger um, or if they might have been misplaced, like many phone chargers tend to be. Um, it doesn't seem like she's really trying to take advantage of the situation
0: to the degree that's being depicted here. Yeah, yeah, and I just, yeah, I I think that that's good to just land on the side of, like, I don't know what happened there. I'm going to choose not to, like, spend the next couple of weeks obsessing about my change jar. Like, I'm going to let that one go. And um, you already changed the locks. She's not coming back. I, I think it would not be a great use of your time and energy to, like, really go down the rabbit hole of, like, gotta, gotta, gotta get that change jar back.
1: Yeah, I don't think it's worth the stress that it's clearly putting on you.
0: Yeah. And good luck. This is genuinely difficult. I, I can appreciate Sherry's desire to help here. I, I can also imagine that there are probably ways in which Sherry is inclined to think the best of people contrary to the things that happen in reality. And that could be challenging and frustrating. And, and I also understand why it was really startling to walk in your home and find somebody naked who then screamed. Um, I, I definitely, definitely understand why that was really difficult and upsetting and i don't want to be too hard on this letter writer
1: oh totally with the subsequent hot coffee bath
0: Yeah. So our next um, letter writer, I feel like is is maybe closer to the sherry department in terms of like, I really want to encourage this person to think about like, what am I getting out of this situation? And what are ways I can advocate for myself that are based in reality and not wishful thinking? But luckily, the stakes are mostly just like a coffee maker.
1: Yeah, this is um, an extreme sherry for sure.
0: Yeah, I guess a coffee maker and the last three years of your life. But it's your turn to read it. I will stop um, uh, giving exposition.
1: All right. The subject is Respect My Label Maker. Dear Prudence, I have been doing part-time volunteer work for a charity for the last two years, making me the most senior volunteer there and the default lead for the rest of the volunteers. There are fewer than 10 paid staff members. Recently, the microwave and coffee maker both died at the same time. It was a 15-minute drive to the nearest fast food place. It was a morale suck not to be able to have a hot meal or coffee, but the director said there was no budget for new appliances. I was very naive and brought in my old college microwave and coffee maker. I used a label maker to identify them and put them in the break room. Right around this time, our director and most senior staff left. The new director started bringing in community service volunteers, mostly rich, snotty kids who wanted to play on their phones. The break room was always a mess, and I was the only one who cleaned. Everyone, including the paid staff, started to complain about the dirty microwave and coffee maker. I would get complaints before I got hellos. I put up an office donation jar for coffee supplies. Only change got added, and then a new volunteer stole all the money while I was scrubbing the microwave. I asked her why the money had disappeared when I'd turned around, and she told me in a sing song tone, You didn't see it, and you can't prove it. I took her to the director, who let her off with a warning. I have been scolded by the director before for getting stuck in traffic. Recently, I came back to another huge mess and took my appliances back to my car. One of the staff tried to stop me, and I told them to fuck off. Someone told the director, and she tried to threaten to call the cops about me quote-unquote stealing. I told her, go ahead. Both the coffee maker and microwave have my name on them, and I know that she doesn't have an official record or donation slip for either of them. She turned red, and I told her I quit. I basically blew up three years of my life and went home and threw up from stress. I believed in the cause, and I dedicated myself to it. It brought me out of my depression, and I felt worthwhile for the first time in years because of this charity. My friends have either praised me for standing up for myself, or seem surprised that I got this upset over a six-year-old microwave. I know I tend to boil over a lot emotionally. I am worried that I damaged the charity. There is no one to take my place. Did I screw them over? Did I screw up? So this one um, hurts my heart
0: (laughs) so much. Yeah. Yeah, I think I often feel a lot of like um, sympathy pains when somebody describes a situation that's been very untenable for a very, very long time. And they only ever get to talk about it when it's like, I have to go. I'm out the door. Everything is totally broken down.
1: Yeah. I mean, this letter writer says that they have the tendency to boil over, but I don't feel like that's the case. I feel like they've kind of simmered for three years of not being appreciated or seen, um, and then it just kind of exploded with this final push.
0: Yeah, yeah, and especially like that—that that being in the same room with somebody, like turning around and seeing that they've stolen—like something about like stealing uh, change jars—is is the theme of this week. But like, and then having somebody do a sing song like "You Didn't See Me Do It." Yeah, I, I, you know, just the the way in which it's so clearly designed to taunt you, um, to make it obvious that they stole it, and that they think so little of you, that they know that you're not going to do anything about it. It's like just a really painful combination of like super low stakes, but really personal and disrespectful. It's just like, I want to screw you out of $11, and I want to taunt you about it, and I want to see the look on your face when you get taunted about it. And that's just so awful to to think about experiencing and when then you add into the fact that they don't even pay you to do this job like yeah no wonder you left with your appliances and to have this director
1: kind of write this person off for their concern about being stolen to blatantly um, and have the same director be someone who is going to chew them out for being a little late to volunteer work yeah i think is just ridiculous
0: and then say like don't steal your own microwave um, yeah, like that. All you did was say, fuck off. And I know you don't have a donation slip and I quit. That's, um, you know, I, I, I understand why, you know, the friends of yours who are like, wait, this all happened over a microwave might feel a little concerned, like, hey, are you doing okay? But I think if they were aware of the context, um, and the context is that for years, you have been squeezed for free labor um, and then, you know, uh, reprimanded, it sounds like more often than your counterparts, um, underappreciated and and then forced to put up with really, you know, um, infantile and, and sometimes dehumanizing behavior um, as you struggle to, like, hold this company aloft. You say, like, you're worried they're not going to be able to go on without you. Like, yeah, it wasn't just the microwave. Like, there's a lot you can look back and think about, like, how do I want to make sure in the future I, I don't? Um, put myself in a similar situation, but that doesn't mean that it was your fault or that you uh, brought this treatment on yourself or that you just overreacted because something happened with a microwave. like you this this day was a long time coming, yeah, it does seem like a pattern of behavior
1: of sort of disrespect and not being appreciated for the work that this person is doing. Um, I'm kind of proud of this person for finally standing up for themselves in this situation. I mean, they shouldn't have been tasked with the sole responsibility of cleaning the microwave and coffee maker that they are providing um, sort of as a service to their fellow volunteers. Yeah.
0: And I just want to point out, like, I appreciate that this company uh, and this work and this cause was part of what it felt like brought you out of this depression. And I don't want to for a minute... um, like denigrate any of that but i don't think that this sounds like a very well run company um so you know the idea that the director and most of your senior staff all left at the same time that's usually not a good sign usually like a mass yeah. exit of upper management is not a sign that a company is being super well run um and then the fact that they apparently depend so much on volunteer labor that you think the company itself might fall apart if you're gone Again, any company that lives or dies by a single employee is not a stable company.
1: Absolutely. And if they cannot replace you for all of the work that you were doing for them, you're probably being
0: passed with too many responsibilities. And you should have been getting paid. And and frankly, they not only can't afford to replace you, they can't even afford to replace the microwave. So again, like, if part of you feels like my leaving might cause the death blow that causes this company to fall apart, like please release yourself from that burden this company has been badly run and coasting on fumes for a couple of years at least and and the problem was not caused because you stopped doing all the free work that you used to do the problem was caused a long time ago and on multiple fronts
1: oh absolutely i do think it's sort of um A pattern of nonprofits and volunteer environments Mm -hmm. to sort of be manipulative and to coerce people into giving everything without any compensation or recognition. Um, But I do think that there are alternate service opportunities out there for you um, that would allow you to give back and work towards the cause that you care about.
0: Yeah. So- you know, in in the ways in which this company helped you get out of a depression and feel worthwhile, that's wonderful. And I hope that you can hang on to that and remember that and appreciate the last couple of years for the way in which it enabled you to um, start to feel like a person again. That's wonderful and that's real. Um, but then I also hope you can identify, you know, as good as that was for me at the time, I need and expect more now from places I either volunteer at or work at. Um, I deserve to be treated like a you know a human being of finite resources who deserves to be you know treated with respect, um, listened to um, you know pr- at least like, praised as much as they are berated. Do you know what I mean? Like a good employee or a good like manager doesn't just chew their employees out and then say nothing when they do stuff well.
1: Absolutely. So
0: yeah, you did not screw this company over. This company screwed themselves over by making themselves reliant on a single non-paid employee that they treated like garbage.
1: Yeah. And it seems to be sort of a pattern of their behavior, especially like you pointed out before, if the entire,
0: you know, administrative staff is heading out at the same time. Yeah, yeah, this is a super dysfunctional company, and that doesn't mean that the good times you had there aren't real or were fraudulent, but th- this company has reached the end of its road when it comes to you. Like, it's given you all it can, you are right to leave, and whatever comes next for you, I hope you'll able um, be able to kind of, like, carry this memory with you and think, I want uh, to work or volunteer someplace that is uh, better organized than this. This is my new floor right? like Something has to be better organized than this in order for me to consider working there or volunteering there.
1: Absolutely. And I would also encourage you to sort of do some self-work before you dive right back into another service opportunity. Um, Because I think that your reaction to ask, did I screw them over and did I screw up in response to you being treated poorly and not being able to take it anymore, Mm -hmm. um, may indicate that you sort of have a pattern of letting yourself be pushed around and taken advantage
0: of yeah I think that's a really good point point. and I mean you know if you're coming fresh off of like a couple years out of a depression where you felt like you didn't have um uh like a that you weren't worthwhile it would make sense that you're struggling to have um a rational self-image or like a a, a thorough and a holistic self-image so I understand totally. that,
1: and that's- one that's not like contingent on other people's opinions of you
0: entirely Right. And just again, as you were saying earlier, Ella, the, the ways in which sometimes charities and nonprofits can conflate the mission of this particular organization with the cause they're supposedly trying to address. So it can be this sense of like, well, if you're not here doing this same job with us, you don't really care about homeless kittens, you know, or like, you know, young people or, or you know, whatever population or, or cause they're trying to serve. And I would just strive um, to remind yourself that like this company is not the same thing as the cause. This is not the only charity in the world. This is not the only way that this particular population can get help or get served. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you got out of there with your appliances. Keep yes. them as long as they work. I'm so glad. Um, yeah. So again, we're kind of like the theme today is very much people who are uh, struggling with like just really, really uh challenging like levels of self-loathing um and so i just i feel for a lot of our letter leather letter writers today yeah yeah this next one the subject line is virgin with herpes dear prudence i'm 20 years old and i've never had unclothed sexual contact but i was just diagnosed with genital herpes i know this is livable and not a big deal but i'm devastated i have no idea how i could have gotten it i had one partner in high school but we only ever kissed I was sexually assaulted once, but that didn't involve any skin-to-skin contact. I've never blacked out. I've never been to a big party. I don't get drunk with anyone other than my very close friends. The only thing that I can think of is that my mother passed it on to me during childbirth, but I don't think I've had this my entire life. The first time I can remember having an outbreak is maybe two years ago. It's not 100% proof yet. I still have to get the blood test, but the doctor I saw said it was most likely herpes. She put me on medication to stop the effects, but I don't know what to do. I know I'll probably never know for sure how I got this, but I don't know how to go on living my life. It's feeling like I'll never have sex or be in a relationship because who would want to be with a broken fat girl with herpes? How do I not let this take over my life? How do I deal with the unadulterated unfairness of this? How can I possibly be okay with the fact that I'll never know how this happened? How can I come to terms with this? This one just kills me.
1: Yeah, and it is so unfair, and I'm so sorry that you're going through this. I, I think,
0: yeah, I feel the same way, and I think the thing again that that leapt out to me is like once again the like hidden guest star of this letter is fat phobia. Yes, because just that line about like at no other point in the letter does she mention anything about her body, um, and then it's just like I'm a broken fat girl, and so this idea yeah. that somehow her body is already something she has to try to make up for with other people, especially when it comes to sex and romance. And so this idea of like, and the herpes is now the like icing on the cake.
1: Or that somehow that phrase amounts to some sort of self-value judgment, Mm -hmm. right? Broken fat girl with herpes, that's not a definition of who you are. You're so much more than any of those things you're calling yourself. Um, And I think that you need to, in addition to waiting for the test results, start working on loving yourself better. Um, and finding your value beyond your self-description as it stands right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I think, again, I think it's, it's really great to wait on those test results. I, I, I guess mostly I think my advice here is just to be patient and kind to yourself. You're already aware that a lot of the thoughts you're having are like sort of initial catastrophizing response to finding this out. You know that you're going to be able to find ways to live with it and that it will not ultimately be the biggest story of your life. So I think whenever somebody writes in and they're like, I already have some perspective about the fact that I'm having a a big emotional reaction – I think that's like, that's a great first step. You are allowed sometimes to have a big emotional response to something when you know, eventually, I will get over this. This will be okay. This is not going to be the thing that defines every day of my life from now until the day that I die.
1: And I I totally get like the unfairness that this person is feeling, right? Right. Like being young and not ever having had, you know, unclothed sexual contact and then having to live with this or the possibility of living with herpes um, must be incredibly frustrating.
0: Yeah, and I think to that, I would just say, I think there's this idea that sometimes we can have, which is like only certain types of people are exposed to various STIs, and um, if I do all the right things, I'll be safe forever. And I think one of the things just just hard and messy about life and bodies and intimacy is while we can, you know, practice safe sex, take reasonable precautions, um, do our best to minimize risks, you, you cannot prevent these things. And, and what I want, I think, more than anything, is not a world where it feels like getting an STI means that I have this awful insurmountable secret that's going to put other people off from me so much as a sense of like, we could live in a world where there are a lot of resources for dealing with and treating and managing various STIs and that people felt like able to be frank and upfront and talk about like, here's what I'm working with. What are you working with? Here's what I'm doing to treat myself. What are concerns of yours? What are limits of yours? Such that it could just be part of the conversation you have with people before you get physical rather than like, oh god I have to find people who seem like they're going to be okay with herpes and then I have to have the big disclosure shame conversation and um, so I I think mostly what I would want for you is to get more information medically so like wait for the test to come back call your doctor go back for another appointment ask all the questions that you have like write them down beforehand ask the big scary questions that you're afraid to ask Um, you know what, whatever you fear might happen in a future sexual encounter, ask that doctor. Um, try to learn as much as you can about what other people do when they have herpes so that you get a sense that you're not the only person who ever got this.
1: Absolutely. And I think you're so right that our society does such work to shame us through the fear of STIs, right? Like, there's not a single STI that makes anyone less valuable or makes them bad. Um, If the test comes back and you do have herpes, it doesn't mean you're undesirable and cut off from physical contact with the entire world. Um, I'm not a doctor, but from my understanding, it's super
0: treatable. Super treatable, super common. And I don't want to say that in the sense of like, so just get over it. But uh, I, I do want to say it just in the sense of you are not even close to alone here. Yeah. And like you said, it's
1: it's common. I don't think people are going to be really on the back by you being upfront about this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So a, a lot of this is kind of like um, general or slightly vague uh, advice, like be patient or, you know, maybe go ask your doctor some questions. But I think honestly, the thing that I would want you to like come away from uh, the advice that I want you most to come away from is like, I hope you start cultivating a lot of relationships with fat people. And finding um, any kind of like fat centered community near you. Because I think the biggest thing that you're struggling with right now is this idea that your fatness and your brokenness, um, and now like having herpes, are are the thing that will keep you from love and intimacy and worthiness. And um, that's a really heavy burden to carry. I don't want you to have to carry that alone. Um, I, I would want for you to get a chance to be around other people who also like move through the world as a fat person and deal with fat phobia, but also find ways to um, support and uplift um, and 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 develop meaningful like community with one another, such that it's not just like. Uh, intimacy, sex, dating, uh, connection are the provenance of thin people. And the best thing that I, a fat person, can hope for is to um, be properly ashamed of and restrictive of my fatness so that some thin people will accept me on a provisional basis.
1: Absolutely. Like the whole self-description is so negatively inflected. Um, And I don't think any of that actually needs to be.
0: Yeah. So I'll I'll end with, because I realize I'm giving like, a lot of advice and I don't want to make it sound like, go feel amazing about yourself tomorrow. <laughs> like Go to a big pool party with 19 other fat people and just own your life and feel amazing and uncomplicatedly good. Because that, I think, can be its own kind of burden, which is like, oh my gosh, I'm like a bad person or a bad feminist or whatever for not feeling sufficiently enthusiastic sure. about my body right now. But I say these things because I want you to have that support in that community and to know that hating yourself is not the natural product of fatness. Um, it, it is something that you can meet with uh, loving, compassion, curiosity, attention, and and try to help yourself heal from. So it's not like, go fix those negative self-talk right now. Just go feel amazing and relentlessly positive every day, all day. You're allowed to still struggle. You're allowed to feel bad. You're allowed yeah. to wake up and feel down on yourself, but you deserve sort of that like um, that injunction
1: to like be happy and love yourself completely and fully all the time. Yeah, um, can absolutely
0: be suffocating. Yeah, yeah. But but I, I want you to be less alone in this, and I want you to be with other people who have experienced their own fat bodies as something other than broken. Yeah, because um, I just think. That's the most important thing for you to be able to see um, when it comes to envisioning a future for yourself. And it's possible. You, you can have that. That is real. Um, and, and that's, I would love to hear back from you. I guess that's all I have to say. I think I don't want to get too stuck on just one letter, but I just, I really feel for this letter writer. Absolutely. All right, I think um, this next letter, am I reading this? Are you reading this? I was doing so well remembering who had read what, and then it all fell apart. Um, I think this is me.
1: Great. Which is great, because this is my favorite. Uh Subject, my daughter is upset I won't allow her trans friend at an all-girl sleepover. Dear Prudence, my 12-year-old daughter is having a sleepover. The rule has always been girls only for sleepovers, but boys are welcome to come to the party until 10 p.m. My daughter's friend has recently announced that he is transitioning from female to male. I have told my daughter this friend can attend for the mixed part of the party, but if he is a boy, then he needs to leave with the rest of the boys. My daughter has fired back that I'm being transphobic. Please advise.
0: Uh, I think. One of the things that's, like, great and challenging about, like, having kids with any, like, queer or trans friends is it just kind of, like, makes it clear the ways in which, like, you can't necessarily just have one rule for sleepovers that, like, ensures no one's going to be, like, flirting or trying to kiss or make out or whatever, like...
1: Yes. Right? You, like this is not to me transphobic, but it is
0: heteronormative, right? Yeah. It's
1: like there's no lesbian girls that are going to be at this party.
0: Right, right. Yeah, like nobody's going to be like yeah. I just um and again, that doesn't mean you can't set any rules or that you don't want like, you know, a twelve year old version of a back and all in your basement. I totally get that. But yeah, I don't know that you're gonna be able to come up with a single rule that guarantees that no sleepover you ever host um will ever have any sort of like uh, accompanying sexual awakening.
1: Yeah. And I, I do think that's the reason behind the rule. Um If not, I would encourage you to reflect more on why this rule exists. Mm -hmm. Um, But it does seem to diminish the fact that there's a lot of sexual activity that goes on in quote-unquote same-gender events or Mm -hmm. anything that involves hormonal teens and preteens. Yeah.
0: So I, I think maybe, you know, the real work needs to be about both, like, communicating clearly your expectations to your kids making sure that there's reasonable monitoring um and then also you know not like going downstairs and like checking the kids with a big flashlight every like 30 minutes to make sure no one's flirting but um you know that's like sleepovers are like kids first forays into the world of like uh acting without your parents like looking over you um and that's part of why they are you know Sites of experimentation. So, all of which is to say, such sites of experimentation. Such, you know, yeah, I, I yeah, we. I, I think everyone listening is like, not that everyone went to sleepovers and had the same experience, but I imagine a number of our listeners um, are casting their minds back and thinking, like, "Hey, did anything like gay ever happen at a sleepover?" Oh yeah, it did. Um, all of the gay happened. Yeah, yes. a, lot, a lot of the gay <laughs> happened. So. You know, I think really the thing to do is to have a conversation with your kid. 12 seems like a reasonable age to start having a conversation where not that you two are going to make this decision as equal partners, but where you can like explain your reasoning to your kid and then invite a little feedback. So I, I think to go back and say, like, I'd love to revisit this conversation with you. Here's my thoughts here. I know that it's not necessarily going to be perfect and I'm open to feedback, but like one of my priorities as your parent when I set the sleepover rules is trying to make sure that like uh it's a a friendly activity and not an excuse for people to try to like hook up and you know your friend is a guy and I'm honoring like his gender identity by a gender identity sorry I um fumble when I talk um yeah and I'm like I'm I'm treating him in the way that he has asked to be treated. To me, this feels consistent with with thinking of him as a person with autonomy. I understand that you might want him to be there because he's your friend. But like, can you walk me through what feels transphobic about saying he's a boy and the boy rules apply to him?
1: Yeah, and I would, you know, just in reflecting on the reasoning behind this rule, I'm assuming that it's about you know, avoiding sexual activity or, like, a teenage bacchanalia. Um, And if that's the case, it's probably worth exploring what the sexual orientation of this friend is. Um, Because it may be that we should be moving away from these gendered events Mm -hmm. to... events that are more appropriate for where we're at in terms of gender identity in our culture now
0: yeah well and that's tricky too i think like because then it's just like a lot of 12 year olds are like i don't know if i'm bi yet or like i don't know if i'm gay or like i might be or i think i am um that's true
1: and then like our our bi kids never allowed to be anywhere
0: right exactly no (laughs) sleepovers for the poor bi kids they all have to (laughs) sleep in hammocks 30 feet away from the (laughs) other kids um yeah so you know I think and I think you can express that to your kid as well and you can say like look this rule is imperfect and and my goal is to you know maintain a particular like friendly atmosphere for a sleepover I realize there will probably not be a single rule that works for everybody so again that's where I think you could maybe invite your kids feedback and again you get to use your own judgment here so if your kids just like yeah. lights up and it's like here are the eight people I have the biggest crushes on they should all come over for a sleepover and you should leave town like <laughs> you are definitely allowed to say like I love you I'm not going to do that um, yeah, yeah I- invite your kids input, say like, given that not all of your friends are cis and straight, and given that what we want for sleepovers is mostly friendliness, and and uh, lighthearted, non romantic, non sexual fun what are some thoughts that you might have about how we could best achieve that? And so you can you can make it an ongoing conversation where you make the final call. But I think if you're able to explain your reasoning to your kid and you're able to make it clear that you, you care about not being transphobic and that you're willing to listen to her before you make a final ruling, she will probably feel pretty good about that decision. Sure.
1: And I, I think it's really worth... I, I just want to be as inclusive of this kid as possible, right? This trans boy. Um... Worth asking your daughter what's the best way we can include him and make him feel part of this event. Yeah. Because I think it's probably really jarring for him, um, just speaking out of my own experience, to transition and then likely lose the closeness that he mm-hmm. had with his group and his friends.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I I think that's a really excellent point. I think sometimes when it comes to transition, especially among kids, sometimes the first way that transition gets honored is by exclusion from events that they used to be a part of. Yeah. And that's, I think, not, I I don't think that should be a goal. I think if if exclusion is the kind of first time that your transition gets acknowledged by other people, other peers, other adults, that's really painful. And so it's, you know, again, part of what this transition is saying is like, a rule like boys only or girls only doesn't reflect the, like, reality of my kids' lives. Because sometimes they switch on you. And another thing, just just to speak out for, you know,
1: the agender and non-binary community, um, this younger generation is identifying more so as non-binary than any other generation in the past. Um, so having these sort of gendered events can be so exclusionary to non-binary kids.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I just, you know, uh, I think that it's probably going to be a a thing that parents are going to need to think about more and more. And rather than kind of flinching and feeling like, ah, things used to be simple when we just had this one rule. I think you can actually look back and think like, oh, actually, there were a lot of ways in which this rule got, you know, people would be able to do like gay shit under the radar that nobody talked about and that could foster in a lot of ways a sense of both excitement and shame and that was complicated in its own way and our era is going to have different types of problems but one of the gifts of getting to be open and upfront about these things is a little less like furtive shameful uh guessing and a little bit more of a sense of like oh we're allowed to talk about this stuff
1: absolutely right like my whole christian boy scout experience was like oh this isn't gay this is practice (laughs) (laughs)
0: Ella, I'm so glad you're here. Yeah, I definitely like I also, you know, I remember, you know, at our evangelical Christian college, the like gendered rules about who could be on whose floor and my like, you know, my college girlfriend and I were like, well, this works out great for us. (laughs) Um, Not the same thing as being 12, obviously. But anyways, Ella, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show today. I can't tell you what a delight it has been.
1: Oh, it's been wonderful. This has
0: been a fun way to catch up. I know. And I'm so excited to get to see you again in, in like a month and a half. Yes. It's going to be amazing. And I look forward to it oh, I'm immensely. Thrilled. Yes. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dear prudence to subscribe. Here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. Those will be, I think, the times that you'll just need to say, like, Betty, I really wish you the best solving this problem. I'm not able to help you with it. I'd love to talk about something else with you. If you can't do that, I'm going to go. If she gets really mad about that, that doesn't mean you did anything wrong. Um, But you need to start drawing this boundary, even if Betty gets really difficult about it. Sometimes there's a fantasy or a hope when people write in to me of, like, I deal with this difficult person. Is there a magical way to say no where they're going to agree with me? And there almost never is. You're usually going to have to say no to them, and they will not like it, and they will let you know they don't like it, and they will try to stop you from committing to your no. You have to do it even when they fight you on it. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash pod It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?